it was the first time that I noticed every role I went in for, I was surrounded by white girls and every role Kelly went in for, she was surrounded by any people of color. And I would go to these tests and you'd be in these rooms and there would be five white girls and then there would be five girls of different ethnicities for the best friend and the white girls were in for the lead. Mm. And I just remember being like, what? Oh, it's so obvious. Like, it's just so, it's, it's even talked about. People say things like, I already have a black girl on my list. And I, you know, it, I guess that was one of the moments that I really started to look at our media differently. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? Uh, Welcome to episode 13 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And this episode is featuring Aya Cash, and our conversation is titled Aya Cash on Becoming Comfortable with Discomfort. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Aya back in 2017. I think the month was June. Uh, coming back from a nice trip with my uh, then girlfriend, Kelly. And uh, Kelly and I are very, very good friends, and they go back through the theater years and coming up as New York actors to transitioning to people that you look to see on your TV and uh, iPad and wherever you watch your stuff uh, every week in some way, shape or form. Um, it's always interesting to sit down and talk to people, get to look, get to know people that you know a little bit better. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, we got down to in this chat. It was a very fun combo. I hope you enjoy. Uh, and on my end, uh, today will be my first day back to work on a TV set. It's pre-pre-production. We're doing a little dry run of the COVID protocol. So maybe in a future episode, uh, I'll come back and talk to you all about what that new world of uh, COVID-19 production looks like. Um, but in the meantime, episode 13, Aya Cash. I'll see you on the other side. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. My first question for you is, uh, tell me about Janine Lesko and Katrina Leitchkoff. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm, I'm guessing those are my law and orders. Like, uh, Janine Lesko, I feel like that might have been my, my first job. Maybe? I, I see, and I'm no authority on your jobs, but I, yes. I see in uh, on IMDb that your first credit may have been in Men We Trust, 
but your first uh, law and order. Same week. Same, okay. Like, or maybe same month, but, but in Men We Trust was a, was like the first web series. I, I don't think they, um, it was, nobody had really done it before. And it was like this, these little tiny shorts where you could click our clothing Okay. Like, so it was like brand integration and it was this total experiment. But I think I had gotten, I shot Law and Order right before that as my first on camera job. Um, so that, that was the, that was the original Law and Order. And then mm-hmm. you did SVU. So that was, that was 06. And then in 2009, according to IMDb, you were in SVU. Yes. I have, I feel like I done, I did three of them. I I feel like I've been in criminal intent as well. <laughs> I know that Sarah Highland, who's the one of the girls on Modern Family, killed my sister in an episode of Law and Order, and I had to like bang on a table in a Russian accent. I know that much. And then there was one where my boyfriend hit a gun, or no, he had a gun, and I and I know I said fuck on camera and it made it on screen. Like oh, wow. you don't, I, it's, it's no voice, but you see my lips just say the word fuck. And I was like, oh, I got, I got that in there. You were, uh, you were in the moment. I was in the moment. I was just, you know, improving my law and order, <laughs> my, my five lines. Um, no, it was an accident, but it made it in. And then I feel like I had one more. I don't know. I was, I was abused and, and beaten and, you know, trashy. That's that was my go-to for a long period of my career. Did you feel like you'd made it? Did you feel like you'd, oh. you'd you'd achieved the New York actor dumb? Yeah, I mean Dorian's right. Like you, you, you got to get on Law and Order if you want to be taken seriously as an mm-hmm. actor. It's like the calling card, and I um yeah, it's look, it's so hard to get any job. I was just thinking about this the other day. I was like, oh. I remember sitting in those law and order waiting rooms with 50 other girls right. who were auditioning for the same five lines. And it felt like such a miracle to get that job. I was like, what, why this time? I've been here many mm-hmm. times before. Right. And I feel like I actually, I can't remember if it was that one or the the one where I'm Russian, but I... I remember calling my agent being like, please apologize for my terrible audition, which is something I used to do quite a bit. And I finally got feedback from a casting director who was like, basically shut the fuck up. And I was like, oh, I need to shut the fuck up. (laughs) But I would feel so bad after my auditions. I'd like send apology notes for my terrible acting, which is really not a good way to instill trust in people. We could we might we could unpack that one. (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel I feel like though that that's a very I had someone tell me um in wow in 2016 before I had ever gotten a job and I was in a program to get the in, uh, the stamp to be hireable right um and we were working on our bios and I was doing what I thought was self-deprecating mm-hmm. and she was like you sound bitter and I was like, well, I am bitter. I thought <laughs> I am bitter, but I've been I've been self-deprecating to, you know, get around it because there was like this time of period. There was a, a period of time where, you know, from 06 to 2016, when that was, I was like, I went to Sundance. I made two features. I won awards at Tribeca and I'm still like, you know, trying to figure out how to 
get someone to turn the Klieg light in my direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I was kind of offhandedly remarking on like, and I, I tried this and, and that didn't work. So I had to go do this. And then it just sounded like I really felt and I, I had no idea it was coming off that way. Yeah. No, I think there's, um, there's two things. There's one, there's a lot of ego in this business and a lot of bullshit. So there's mm-hmm. the, the good impulse to try to be, um, separate from that and, and not, um, not be too up on your own shit. And then there's the bad impulse, which is the, um, in my case, the sort of apology or the, um, the, uh, putting myself down so nobody else could before anybody else could. And, uh, and the way you were doing, which is like a self-deprecation, like before you can say it, I'm going to call it out so that, you know, I own it in a certain way. Um, I, I definitely still struggle from that. I've already got all the critiques in my head and I'm ready to, to, Mm. you know, talk myself out of every job and cast someone else. Um, but I've also worked very hard to, um, to try to train that, that from being my first impulse or, or allowing that out. That I get to, that I can deal with that on my own. I don't need to to make other people deal with it. How do you feel about this? I, this was a later question, but now this conversation makes me pull it up in the timeline. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you the difference between later preparing like for a role and preparing for like a, an appearance on a talk show. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with what we're talking about, I feel like... I know when I used to do interviews, I would I would think it went horribly. And then I'd watch it and I'd be like, that guy knows what he's talking about. And so do you feel like that might have been what was happening? Like you felt like you were off target in those auditions, but like they were there and they were like, no, you you like were great. But you're walking away with like this fog of audition that you've positioned into negativity. I think it's about being vulnerable. I think anytime you're vulnerable um, and you step away from that, if you're truly in a moment and truly vulnerable, you step away from that and you kind of think, oh my God, what have I, what have I shown? Because in that vulnerability, you're not in control. And mm-hmm. um, as someone who very much likes to be in control, um, that that doesn't, you don't walk away feeling great all the time. Um, the truth is I also can be bad. I mean, the, the, some of those auditions were bad and you know when you're not doing your best work. So, it, so it's a combination of, of both. In terms of talk shows, it's interesting that you brought that up since I think a lot about this, um, the performance of self is a completely different thing than uh, acting. And that is, is still very challenging for me um, mm-hmm. because when now I've been acting for so long, um, I, I understand how to do that. I don't necessarily know how to act like myself, um, and give that, uh, to, uh, an interview or a, um, uh, some sort of press event. And I also, Kelly and I actually talk about this a lot. Like, there, there's also a question of how much do you want to give of yourself that when I first started out, I was like, I want, I want, 
everyone mm-hmm. to feel and see all of me. And then as you go, you're like, eh, that's okay. I, I right. also don't need you to see all that. And I don't want you to see all that. And that some of that's mine. And you see certain um, people in our business who are really not great interviews, who can mm-hmm. kind of like tell the joke and, and do the thing, but they're very held. And I don't judge them for that. It's a very bizarre thing to um, to play yourself. Uh, right. You see, you know, <laughs> this is such a bizarre example, but like, like the Royals, like Megan and Harry, if you watch them in an interview, and I'm not a big Royals person, but I think they're fascinating because Harry is great at playing himself and Megan is not. Hmm. And Megan's an actor, right? You know, whatever you want to say, like whatever, she, she's an actor. Right. That, that's what she learned to do. It's a different technique to know how to play yourself. Uh, and right. you see people who are great at it. And they're the really fun, interesting interviews that feel like off the cuff and quote unquote authentic. But uh, I but learned to not people, judge. Aren't those people you know? essentially playing characters and that's why they're good at it? Because because I feel like like for me, if I feel like the talk show is my general meeting. Mm-hmm. And I go in and I kind of, I only got good at them when I decided who I'd be when I walked in that room. Mm-hmm. And by that, not like a fake person, but like a heightened version of the part of myself that I think helps me win in this arena. You know what I'm saying? And so then I can, I'm less worried about being myself and more worried about staying on track with the intention I had coming in the room, if that makes sense. It's funny. I think for me, it's probably the opposite because um, because I can be so in my head. And the thing that I love about acting is being out of my head, is being in... I mean, you know, I started in theater and what I thought of acting didn't really exist in film and TV for me for many years, even though I was on film and TV, I would say I was talking on film and TV. I wasn't acting. Hmm. Uh, where it, Because the thing that I thought of as acting was the thing that happened in theater, which is like you, you start and then you fly and you're like, what the fuck just happened an hour and a half right. later? And you're like, you just, that, that sort of um, energy and that feeling of complete abandon and like letting whatever happens happen was what acting was for me. And doing that in these tiny increments of 10 lines, I couldn't, I didn't know yet how to um, connect in like that. That's not, that wasn't the acting that I was first drawn to and so excited about. So for me, it's it's about not making decisions, both in my acting uh, like I like to do when I come to set, I, I am very social. I don't sit in the corner and like think and focus in that way because I'm the opposite where I want to just, I've done my homework. I want to come in and play and see what happens and look at someone else and see like, what the fuck? I don't know. Let's see what, what happened. That's the exciting part for me. And so the best interview that I ever had or talk show I ever had, I actually had just taken a clown class (laughs) And I'm terrible at clown. But it was so freeing to just be bad and look stupid and make the wrong choices and have people not laugh at your, your, you know, bad acting or your bad, that it made me feel free that I went on. I was like, ah, this is me. And honestly, if you watch interviews 
that I've cried after feeling like I've embarrassed myself and my family <laughs> um, versus that interview where I took the clown class and I felt so free. They don't look that different. In fact, I'm probably cooler in the hmm. other ones because the truth is I'm a very expressive person and what is cool and what is what people are often attracted to is not that they want to feel like they got to earn something from you. I've learned to sit back because mm. I know that that brings people in. And, um, but I had a lot more fun on the other one and I'm just of an age now where I don't give a shit. I want to have more fun. <laughs> I don't want to, I not let, let me be clear. I give some shits. I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not fully realized yet, but I do having fun is more important to me than looking good. And when I had fun, that, that, that was a better experience. So you were doing theater before you were doing TV, before you were doing film. Uh, what is the story that you, if you have one that you think back to as being the moment you recognize the power of telling stories or, uh, or, or hearing stories? So my mom is a writer. She's a poet and a novelist. And um, every night before bed, she would read me a poem. So I feel like I, I had a lot of that sort of storytelling growing up. Um, I remember, the, it's so funny, this just came up. And I recited this whole thing from memory that I haven't thought about in probably, you know, 25 years and the other person I was talking to knew it too. And I don't, I haven't like looked it up and remembered where it's from. It's not exactly a poem, but um, there's this, I remember my mom saying this to me when I was a kid. One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise. He got up and shot the two dead boys. If you don't believe my story, it's true. Ask the blind man he saw too. <laughs> and, um, and wait, what age were you told that? Oh, God, probably way too young. <laughs> Death and uh, probably like five or six. Okay, okay. Um, so I have these like little pockets of, of stories in my mind. Um, uh, and I love that one because uh, it's, it's about things that are both true and untrue, <laughs> uh -huh. um, which is, which is, most of life. Uh, I also, on a more sort of like clear note, uh, I Princess Bride was probably the first movie that I ever <laughs> really was like, oh, this is, this is, this is some good shit. <laughs> and so, so your mom was a poet and mm -hmm. I, I've, I've done my research. I know that your dad <laughs> was, uh, I guess is one of the leading meditation guidance folks and, and, uh, in meditation Buddhism. guidance folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I found online. Um, and, uh, so like, how did, how did that propel you toward pursuing this idea of performance? Well, you know, we're in a time where everyone talks about echo chambers and I am someone who is, um, particularly chambered from my childhood. I grew up in San Francisco. My mom was a poet, novelist, and a flute player. Uh, my dad was a, uh, oh God, he had so many different jobs, um, but he uh, 
played in a Polynesian gamelan for a long time. He was a musician. Then he fixed instruments and uh, he fixed my mom's flute is how they uh, met. So <laughs> it's how I it just always came... begins. <laughs> he fixed her flute. Um, I just grew up in a very artistic family uh, who was very encouraging um, and I never thought I had to make any money from it. My parents were poor. Um, it just wasn't a part of their value system. I say this sometimes and then my mom's like, I wish I had money. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like, it's not they were like, it doesn't matter. I think, you know, money doesn't matter to people with money. So money mattered, but they just didn't have a right. lot of it. And it didn't, it didn't feel like that was the main goal uh, in life. So, uh, yeah, so... I was just very encouraged to be artistic and I thought I was going to be a singer, but I wasn't very good. Um, I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't very good. <laughs> so uh, acting ended up being it. I, I got very into Shakespeare in, in high school. and um, What I was it about Shakespeare? Exciting. I liked the homework and I'm not like a... a I don't want to paint myself as like some amazingly studious, like, oh, I was just such a nerd. And I was so, it's just, <laughs> but I, but I loved that there were, um, I love that you could dig deeper into the text and there were answers there. I love that it was mm. these sort of like hidden puzzles, um, that it wasn't always obvious, but that the, the more you dug, there were actually, um, there were little, uh, paths to take, um, right. to, to do it. Um, and I thought it was really fun. I never, it's not like I loved watching Shakespeare. I just loved doing it. It was really exciting to, to do it. Do you feel that you became, uh, more skilled at, at, at analyzing and reading into the subtext of a text from having done Shakespeare and were able to bring that to, uh, Janine Lesko, <laughs> or, uh, you know, or, but to your later work or, or is it like a, a thing that you do it over here, but like, it doesn't really matter when you come to TV. Um, again, I think TV for me, especially in the beginning was just so, uh, mysterious and just trying to, to, you know, hit my mark. I mean, if you watch We Are Men, which please don't, um, not We Are Men. Jesus. I did a sitcom called We Are Men. In Men We Trust. In Men, in men We Trust. Um, it, if you watch that, there's like actually a shot of me like stepping over the track. Like you can see like my head go to the side as they're walking because I don't know how to just walk over the track that they've laid without moving. Um, so it was a real learning curve. Um, but yes, I, I do... I think what it gave me is this belief that the writer is God in a certain way and that they mm -hmm. hold all the answers, um, which has ultimately served me well in collaboration in film and TV, which is a medium that is often, um, I think actors often think they know better. Mm. And while I have uh, learned to uh, collaborate in a way that, uh, that allows me to have a voice in a character, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, I think I started out, uh, with the belief that it was my job to make it work, not to rewrite the lines. And that work ethic was, um, was very helpful. Um, 
coming from a theater background and coming from a, a place of like the text being very important. So in, in consideration of that and, and, in mm-hmm. uh, because you mentioned collaboration, what has been, uh, some of the best direction you've received and why, like whether it was a note on a performance, uh, adjustment or, I don't know anything that you want to do with that because I feel like that's a for for emerging and for working directors like that's the that the challenge is like any note is full of is is governed by critique yet you need to you're trying to find ways to deliver it in a non-critical fashion and so that becomes the dance of um how do I go and and kind of uh, position this next take in the way that I envision without negating the value of what's been explored thus far. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a great question because um, one of the biggest issues that comes up between actors and directors is ego. Um, and I don't mean like big ego. I just mean that uh again, when you're an actor and you feel like you're being vulnerable and someone comes up and is like, do it again better, it, you know, <laughs> which is sometimes what we hear, it, it feels horrible and it can shut an actor down. Um, I don't like to be yelled at from Video Village. I like someone to come over to me and, and give me a note. And I don't need, actually, I, I find praise just as suspect. Um, like, mm. I, I don't love lots of compliments. Um, that makes me nervous um, because it makes me feel like you don't trust that I know what I'm doing or that I need some sort of soothing. Um, mm. And again, this is, you know, many years in. Uh, I might have needed a little more of that when I was younger, but I, I'd rather someone be direct. I think um, the best way I take a note is someone coming over and be like, that was great. Let's try something else this way. Or um, why don't we do, or we have that, let's do this. Um, right. I often feel like the best notes I get because I'm coming to, to um, any moment trying to make it obviously is, I mean, it feels so silly. Sometimes talking about acting feels silly, but I'm trying to stop judging myself for that. Um, <laughs> but the, um, my, my, I tend to get emotional, right? Because that's the key in. Um, and I love when someone's like, okay, now hide that. Or now, you know, I like another layer to something mm-hmm. is exciting mm-hmm. to me. Um, it's not throw that out. It's here's what else we need. Like, ooh, right. let's do that and let's go again. The other thing I hate is when someone gives me a note that I've obviously chosen already, <laughs> that they've just mm. seen me do something and they're like, I have an idea, let's do that. Right. As opposed to, that's a good idea. Let's make that bigger or let's go right. here. Um, you know when but generally I, just... I like direction. Right. You know, the best thing I got from this documentary, uh, the September issue uh, on Anna mm-hmm. Wintour, um, mm-hmm. she was, we were behind the scenes and every person that she talked to was like, how do we enhance that? Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, that's good lingo. And now I use it mm-hmm. because it, it's it's not, it's it's no judgment on what's been 
explored or 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 presented it's like okay like let's keep going you know what i mean mm -hmm. um and who doesn't want to enhance things like <laughs> um can you tell when a director is giving you a note that they don't believe in and do you like do you prefer to see that fucking dance of of bullshit or would you rather they tell you look man they just want this one more of these shits and like i well, yeah, you, you, you look great to me just get one more and then we'll move on like how, how do you prefer that those type of moments if they've happened to you i mean that's tough because there's so many dynamics i mean this this is really what happens in tv right because in in um movies you're dealing with the source like the director gets to do what the director wants whereas in tv they're managed by the creator and possibly a producing director and possibly even a dp i mean there's so many voices um i guess it depends on my relationship with the director i don't want to be involved in um any sort of sides like i don't want to i don't i don't want to hear any sort of shit talking in like they just want so unless we're friends, <laughs> unless mm -hmm. I know you and, mm -hmm. and we have that dynamic and you can be upfront with me. I'd rather, um, if, if we're working together for the first time, I'd rather just let's take the note. I'll do the note and let's not worry about it. Um, mm. or like, let's just try this as opposed to, we got to do it for that guy. That's interesting. Cause there, and this is the dance of the, of the director, not to turn it into me, into, into yeah. my, my, my interview, is, but like, it is, a, <laughs> it, it's your podcast about directing. It, it, somewhat, you know, but, but that, that's the thing. There's times where like there, I've done shows where actors don't want to just try one. Like it's, mm -hmm. if you say, let's try, they gonna, they look at you crazy. Like, no, let's do what we need. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm on episode 108. We're not trying anything. And and then the other side of it is that sometimes you can tell that you might if they are a, if they have a feeling about a note and you co-sign it. Mm -hmm. They may think you don't know what you're talking about or thinking. And so you're sometimes challenged with how do I navigate this moment where I know they think this note is not, it's not what they desire to do and they have an opinion about it. And do I full-throatedly say, let's get this when then they might be like, oh, when we get to the major scenes, I am not listening to shit from you because you, that's, a, that's, you don't get the show. Or you don't get what a moment is. So it, it's an interesting dynamic that is touch and go in case by case. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think the being a director, you, you got to be really good at reading people. There's so many, you know, my first thought was, what an asshole. They're not going to try one. But I also understand that, yeah, if you're eight seasons in and it's your show and it, like just thinking because we just, you know, I just uh, heard Rob's interview you know, it's their show. They know this. They, they're they pretty uh, tight ship in terms of they know how to shoot it. They know how what they want. They want your input and they want to play, but they also want to go home to their families. Right. You know, I, I understand someone being like, come on, let's let's move on. Um, but for me, maybe because I don't have kids, I'm just always like, yeah, <laughs> let's do it again. Let's try right. it again. Like, I don't often ask for more takes 
Um, but I always like to do more unless it's like an insert. And then I'm like, really? <laughs> how many, <laughs> how many of me picking up a piece of pasta do you need? <laughs> right. Right. Um, so how did you land in TV over film? Uh, because there was a period from IMDb that mm -hmm. shows you were working in both. Um, was it a was it a desire to focus on one more than the other, or was it a bit of um, this is where the where the cards landed? You want the real answer? <laughs> TV yeah. pays so much better if you're not famous. I'm not famous. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna be in a movie as a, you're, you're, a kind, non you're kind of famous. Yeah, you I, know. I, I, See how I've many hits this you. gets. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean I'm not, I know, I know that, at, fine, at someone at my level does not get paid a lot to do a movie. So because I'm generally not going to be the lead in a movie um, that pays well, and if I'm going to be the lead, it's not going to pay well. That That's just the reality. I don't have... I actually really genuinely don't have bad feelings about that. I get to do great roles in, in indie movies. Um, right. And I uh, get to do small roles in big movies. And I get to do great roles on TV. And I just, as long as I get to do good roles and pay my bills, I feel happy about that. And TV is just much better paid um, for someone who is not a movie star. Let's put it that way. Um, and the roles are better. So I get to, I get a good role and I get paid versus movies. It's one or the other. Um, and I just like the long form storytelling. I love, you know, I've mainly done cable, so I've never been on a show where you're in it for 10 months out of the year. I might feel like that. I, that's a lot. Um, right. I like, but I like jumping back in. Um, every year and coming back and being like, oh, I learned new things. Right. Is there any difference between, is there any difference in your prep um, between TV and film uh, or even uh, broadcast and cable? Because I know you've done, um, you know, you had your Will and, well, Will and Grace, that was when it, the reboot came, but you did Modern Family and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Like, is there, is there a difference for you in how you step into that? really i i i kind of think of acting as just acting and even like even between theater and film and tv there were some technical things i had to transition into um right but i don't like i don't audition for things differently i don't i don't go in and be like well this is a theater performance i have to do this I kind of just think of now acting is acting. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't say there's a difference in, in how I prepare. Uh, I also have done very little series regular work on, on network. So my experiences are sort of the experiences of a guest star, which is a very different experience on set than being a regular. Um, being, being a guest is just that you are a guest and you are hopping into you're coming to someone else's home and you're eating what's in front of you um, <laughs> doesn't matter if you're vegan doesn't matter if you're vegan you show up 
you you speak when spoken to sometimes uh you you know you learn the rules of that show and I did a lot of guest stars before I became a series regular and one of the gifts of you're the worst was that it Stephen hired a bunch of guest stars like all the regulars were people who have been doing guest stars for years we were all it was our all of our first big job and so it was just such a happy set because we were like oh we get to make the rules and we want to have a good time and be friendly guest stars would come on to our show and be like it's so nice here and I was like it's so sad that that's (laughs) not normal (laughs) right well you know you make a good point first off I appreciate you for literally transitioning into my next question so I won't ask it (laughs) about about guest stars but there's something that Dorian Missick said in our interview where he talked about in tv there's so much money so fast which begets egos and that is where you end up having the um dynamics that we could never imagine would be part of the job you know Mm -hmm. like I remember um him sharing a story about being on some film, uh, which kind of kills my now my my anecdote because now I'm talking about a film. But like they, he wanted like Red Bull and they wouldn't get it. You know what I mean? Like they wouldn't get him a Red Bull and they're like shooting nights and then it became like, well, I'm gonna put in my rider. I, I want 3,900 Red Bulls now. You know, and it's like you end up having to do that because the simple request goes overlooked because of how they are feeding the beast and the ego of whomever um, is at the top. And there becomes a point where you can't even necessarily be modest Pete because then you'll show up to set and somebody else got a fucking bus and you have a three banger. You know what I mean? And and it's just like, and by that, for people who don't know, I'm talking about uh, the smallest of the trailers that- By the way, triple bangers, all five seasons of You're the Worst. 1970s carpet. There you go. <laughs> I mean, the truth is, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I was in much nicer trailers for my guest star roles on network television <laughs> than I ever was for You're the Worst. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, it's interesting how the ego uh, gets involved. And I'm definitely not immune. I have definitely had moments that I look back on and I'm like, why was I so upset? Why was I, why did I feel so wronged in that moment? Because I couldn't get the thing I needed. Like, what, what is that? When, like, a couple years ago, I was getting you, you know, a truffled mac and cheese as my job. (laughs) Like, what is the, how does that happen? And I Hmm. think there's two things that happen. One is, yes, money and success brings out insecurity and um, everybody feels like a fraud and feels the need to overcompensate. Um, and you get used to people getting you shit. People walk you to the bathroom when you are on set. You are not allowed to go to the bathroom alone. I mean, right. you're treated like a child. So you start to behave a little like a child. It's funny because I would always uh, make jokes uh, at the PAs when like I'd walk by and they're in the walkie, Pete's on the move. I'd be like, guys, yeah. I, I'm going 30 feet. You know, I'm be, I'm getting a grape. I'll be right back. I'm not yeah. I'm not headed to my car and, and, and driving away because I've had a rough day. Like I'm going to stick around. Yeah. Yo, this is Dorian Missick, a.k.a. DJ Tailwind Turner from the ABC show For Life. 
And you're listening to Let's Shoot with my man, Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. What do you think it was about you um, having done, you said the cast was kind of full of folks who had been guest stars. What was it about you that uh, you think attracted them to you for Gretchen Cutler in You're the Worst? I mean, full disclosure, I look very similar to the creator's wife. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I say that jokingly, but I, um, it's interesting when I first read it, I was like, I could, I could be so good in this job and they will never hire me because I don't look like the kind of girl who can say you got all of this, like that. I am not Mm. the typical beauty that is, seen as allowed to have that kind of confidence and sexual confidence and the 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 way I look might stop me from getting this role is is essentially how I felt Mm. and I do think it's funny that you know Stephen's wife is is a is an adorable redhead is not a (laughs) Megan Fox because in my mind I had been like well that's Megan Fox because I internalize this shit too. It's not like I'm immune to the idea that like you have to look this way in order to behave this way because, you know, of misogyny. So, uh, you know, I, I had sort of, uh, talked myself out of being able to play that role because I thought my beauty was not the kind of beauty that would be allowed to play that role. Um, so, uh, that also gave me a lot of freedom as I was like, well, I know I can be the best actor to do this. Like, I know, mm. I know who this person is. I was um, a very self-destructive teenager. Um, I was, you know, just did a lot of bad shit and um, went very much the other way in my 20s. And I'm now a very responsible, boring human who wears linen. And <laughs> I, uh, but I, but I know that girl and she is still in me. So she's an easy access. And I'm, I was a good choice because I'm not still that girl because I, I, when you're in that, it's hard to play that. Uh, it's actually mm. it, that, that separateness and that um, distance that I had gave me the ability to, to play her. That's a super accurate analysis. Like the, the thing that popped into my mind and it might seem like uh, a bit of a, of a leap, but I don't think it is. I immediately thought of Malcolm X and I thought of Denzel and Malcolm X, you know, because to you have to go through Detroit Red to become that elevated person that made the transition after prison. And if you're in it, it's hard to apply analysis to the psyche or psychosis or whatever it might be mm-hmm. that's driving it. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And there's anybody else, I assume, would have probably been in there um, presenting their idea of that thing and not have an understanding of what it really feels to embody it and and the Mm -hmm. risk of what it is to live it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's interesting. interesting. So, Me and Malcolm X, is that what you're saying? Is that what's going to be I'm the saying. title of my show? Aya <laughs> Cash and Malcolm X. Aya Cash on Malcolm X. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, so, what stories are, aren't being told? And um, my the reason I have that question is I feel like um, in this racial reckoning, Black Lives Matter um, moment, which I hope is not a moment because a moment is fleeting. Um, I feel like you're like super deliberate with informing your fans or community, whatever. I I, I hate the word fan because it's like fan is fanatic. And I think Mm -hmm. that Robert De Niro uh, movie. Um, But um, yeah, you're deliberate about kind of informing. You go Robert De Niro, I go swim fan. So, you know, our references. (laughs) You know, film film school nerd. Um, <laughs> but like, what's going on? And like, what is it that you think isn't being told by the industry um, that's kind of put us in a position where it's such a revelation now that this shit has been happening? I mean, look, I... I remember being... 2000, maybe 11 is when I was like really testing for pilots, 11 and 12 with Kelly in LA. Oh, we should clarify too for folks. So uh, Kelly is Kelly McCreary, my wife. Aya is one of her best friends. And full disclosure, Aya gave a speech at our wedding. So um, that's probably the only reason I was able to secure this interview. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm very busy these days. Um, uh, So I remember being auditioning for pilot season uh, with Kelly. And we were both, you know, working our butts off and wearing our short little skirts to try to get these jobs. Um, And... It was the first time that I noticed every role I went in for, I was surrounded by white girls and every role Kelly went in for, she was surrounded by any people of color. And I would go to these tests and you'd be in these rooms and there would be five white girls and then there would be five girls of different ethnicities for the best friend and the white girls were in for the lead. And I just remember being like, what? Oh, it's so obvious. Like, it's just so, it's, it's even talked about. People say things like, I already have a black girl on my list. And I, you know, I guess that was one of the moments that I really started to look at our media differently. And because I was experiencing it while, while I was watching with the rest of the world, you know, I, I am, I am who I am. I'm a little white girl from San Francisco. Uh, and I, uh, have obviously internalized, you know, our culture and wasn't paying attention. You know, I was just taking things as, uh, 
as real. I was like, oh, that's just how the world is. Um, so I think that was the first time I was like, oh, wait, oh, this is, this is why we see what we see. And now I'm actually noticing what's around me, um, uh, in terms of our business and in terms of like what was being shown on television. It's uh, almost like, like walking into the first, like if you could walk into the full supply chain of McDonald's mm-hmm. and then be like, wait, that's not an egg. That's not food. You know, like Mm -hmm. like it was great while you were just going there and getting your three dollar meal and and driving off or and it's great while you're watching the TV and enjoying uh, must see the must see lineup Mm -hmm. on NBC. But now you're like, wait, I'm actually like behind the curtain and watching all the inner workings of it. Well, the next level of that was going, oh, it wasn't like this when I was growing up. I watched tons of, Girlfriends was one of my favorite shows. Like I watched all these shows filled with black people and now not so much. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that was also shocking to me. I was like, oh, what happened? Um, So uh, this is sort of a roundabout answer to your question, but um, I think what we need to see now uh, is, well, look, I just want to say I am not an expert and uh, I can be wrong, (laughs) but for me, it's about allowing everyone to participate in whatever they want. And so like, there's this, I also see a lot of um, people of color who are forced to only direct and only uh are only hired on shows for people of color like there seems to be this idea that like oh okay everyone can go to the asian show if you're asian Mm -hmm. the black show Mm -hmm. if you're black and that's where we have diversity but when it comes to the rest of our uh content when there are predominantly white people in charge or white people on screen, it's like, well, we couldn't find anybody. There's just nobody available. Um, So uh, I think think that kind of diversity is hopefully beginning to change. But I do think that there is a... There is a problem in the conversation among white people. Let me talk to that because I'm a white person and I'm talking to a lot of white people uh, in this business specifically. And the challenges that I come up against for myself um, is nobody, we are in a, uh, let's call it a movement rather than a moment. Uh, We are in a movement where people are trying now to shift and do the right thing very quickly. And nobody really knows what to do yet. So everybody is grasping at straws and sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall and saying, well, maybe this is the thing, or no, this is the thing, or no, you're doing it wrong, and we have to do it this way, or this is the thing. And so like uh, discussing, I'm developing something and discussing casting, and it's one of the first times where I get to have a say in any of that. Um, And I proposed that somebody... uh, that there's an opportunity just for the casting list to be incredibly diverse for essentially all the characters, whether or not they're in a family that's already cast, uh, right. as long as that storytelling is is rewritten and makes sense. And right. someone said, well, that could be tokenism. And I was like, 
okay, so what's the answer? Then just make everybody white so nobody feels bad? Or is the answer to actually think about what is the the best way to tell that story? And mm. is that something that can be told in here? And maybe the answer is no for this story, but you have to ask the questions. So I think we right. just have to keep asking the wrong questions, the right questions. We just have to keep going and and doing things wrong or else we're all fucked because if you... There's plenty of people who in in who disagree with you on any issue, right? And there's plenty of people who maybe agree with you on some things and then don't agree with you on others. And if you just listen to all those voices and just do exactly what anyone says who's in front of you, yeah, we're going to get nowhere. But I do think that we have to keep having those conversations and feeling really awkward and being like, I don't know, that might be right. That maybe right. it's not. What, what is the, let's go down that path and see what happens. Um, right. So I just think- But you know what's to, so interesting is that that's a question that folks behind the scenes do on every single line item of their budget and on every single category of, of, of creative input. I mean, if I have, a, if I have a, a scene with a cake, I talk about four or five different cakes that it could be. I talk about the icing. I've had stories where I've made a, I took the way that a name was written on the cake and used it as a joke to underline what was going on in the episode. Mm -hmm. Like everything's an opportunity. And, and we scrutinize and, and try and squeeze all the water out of the stone to make sure we've thought about it for all potential drama or all potential comedy. And then we step away and say, oh, well, you know, it's got to be this guy. <laughs> as, if, as if there's nothing more to explore. So I think that's, you're spot on. And that's kind of the, just add that to, to the, the, um, the questioning. Add that to the effort to find out what's the best. Yeah, I just don't under, I, I think it's just, it's an uncomfortable moment. And people do not like to be uncomfortable. And, but there's only through there is no back in my right. mind. So there's only through. So like, it's just about keep talking about it until it's not uncomfortable, until it becomes normal for us to have those discussions. And the only way that we can have good discussions is, look, I can't remember what fucking podcast this was that I listened <laughs> to, because I listen to a lot. But there was, um, uh, it was about um, a scientific experiment. And they realized when they had people from the same university, they were hiring from the same universities, the same like group of people who were thinking the same way. And the experiment doesn't get solved as quickly as if you ha had people from all different schools of thought who came from different backgrounds and different experiences. It's only right. beneficial. That's what I don't, the thing that's so upsetting that gets lost in all our discomfort is that it's such a positive thing. Like it makes everything better. So we talk about diversity as, a, as an issue that it needs to be solved because we need to be good people. And I'm like, but it also makes better art. Like right. it just makes things, be right. it makes better science. It makes better. So right. why don't we just try that? We've tried the other. Well, I don't know, I'm a little so, bored. <laughs> this, the thing that's so in, ingrained there, too, is that it also makes more money. 
Yeah. And, and not that that should be, I mean, not that that should be your driver, but it is the driver. We sell and washers. I, TV shows are to sell washers. Like Exactly. It is about exactly. the money. It's about that. And, and, you know, when you mentioned the shows that we grew up on, right, the, like Girlfriends and all that, I was reading some article, much like all the podcasts you listen to. I read so many things that I can never give proper reference. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, I'm never doing it to someone who who wrote it. But um, <laughs> there's a great you know, there, book called "Men Explain Things to Me." That's all about that. <laughs> I was I was I learned the other day. It's like I told you that shit. Um, <laughs> but the when you look at what was actually done it, with the shows you're mentioning, whether it was the CW or UPN or even Fox in its nascent stages, they specifically built their network off of product content for the black audience, almost as a counter program, built it up. I mean, in Living Color was on there because they're like, we got to do something different. It mm -hmm. kills, introduces you to Jim Carrey, who even, uh, I think, uh, a couple weeks back was like, you know, I wouldn't be in this industry without those folks, without the Wayans brothers, you know? Mm -hmm. But like then the moment there's like a little bit of, uh, of uh, semantics are important here, but let's just say uh, traditional recognition or the numbers get up or those dishwashers are selling at a high enough volume, then it's like, let's pivot and move over here to what we value more as quote unquote mainstream. And it's what happens with, with the voting block of, of black mm -hmm. folks. And it's just a, a repetitive thing. But the, the irony is that the biggest influence globally in many, many industries is driven by the unfiltered content of music, you know, and the, and, and fashion. But somehow in film, it's like uh, it's it doesn't carry, and it just kind of goes to underline a lot of the uh, I don't know the systemic racism and prejudice that's powering all of those decisions. So yeah, it's all fun, all fun stuff. I, I look, I get it. I mean, I, I you know, am, if I'm going into a job and it's all white people, and I could step away and say, you know, I don't think this is right. I, I'm losing a job. I mean, I think everybody, I think there's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of fear and, uh, and uh, fear of, of losing power, fear of losing livelihood. There's just so much fear. And maybe that's got to be here for the first stage, but hopefully we're mm. getting through it. <laughs> stage two. <laughs> Of fixing the world. Yeah, it'll be after lunch. We'll do lunch. We'll do the world after lunch. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> if you had the keys to the castle and could change anything about the business or maybe anything specifically about acting, what would it be? Oh wow! Um, I mean, now I'm an asshole if I don't say we fix <laughs> racism. <laughs> Catering needs uh, to improve. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously that. And then on a, on a, uh, I guess on a more selfish level, um, I, I do, I, I wish we were a little more English in our casting. 
as well. I do feel like the Brits allow people to look like people. I feel like, and that I, I don't mean just casting. I also mean hair and makeup. I also mean mm. wardrobe. I wish that, you know, so often people come up to me and they'll be like, oh my God, I thought it was you. You look so different. Or I thought, you know, mm. and I'm like, well, that sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't, like, I. it sucks that, that we all have to look like these versions of ourself that only really exist, you know, once in a while. I wish right. we could look like people. What do you think uh, makes that happen? Because I know, like you, you mentioned that, and I, I, I immediately thought of um, a project we did not discuss, but um, Easy with mm-hmm. Joe Swanberg, I would say that's kind of, kind of the feel in, in, a, in, a, in a project like that. Yeah, I mean, Joe didn't even want hair and makeup. I think Netflix forced, not forced, but like, I think it was part of the union stuff that he had Mm. to have hair and makeup, which, you know, I I also very much respect. I don't want to say let's abolish hair and makeup people. They they do a wonderful job and and that's a huge part of our industry. Um, But he was very much into like, let's, let's make it look real. And I remember saying to the makeup artists, I was like, you know, I, I love what you did, but like, it looks too pretty. Like it looks too perfect. And like, she's, right. you know, not trying, trying here, but it, I mean, it's, it's really complicated. Cause I have that. There's another failure um, of mine. <laughs> you know, I've had the opportunity uh, to, to, wear less makeup or have my hair less done. And the truth is You're the Worst was a very minimal show. I mean, if you look at, there's some photos online where I do not look like myself at all. Like network shows where I I look crazy, like contour. (laughs) And I mean, people would come to set and be like, oh my God, that's a you know, caked on makeup. So I do think that I was luckily on a show that wasn't like super glam. Right. But, you know, I also, I do want to look pretty. So, so I've also uh, done the thing that I'm fighting against. Like, like, you know, we're, there's a lot of hypocrisy uh, in, in our business and in myself. Uh, So, but it's more, it's also about me doing better and saying, you know what? I don't need that. Or I don't want that. Uh, Mm. Or we don't, let's not do my hair. Like she's, you know, we tried to not, um, we tried to do less makeup during the depression arc of season two. And there, there are times when I look straight up crazy and you're the worst and, and that's good. But there's also times when I probably could have been like, we don't need to do this. And, and, um, because I was high on the call sheet, I would have been allowed to do that. And I was like, I'm, I want to look cute. <laughs> right. 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 I mean, it's, it's a, it's always a tightrope in every decision of every day and something has to win out, but long but as I you're thinking think about it, it. Yeah. But and I also do think that if we, if we just all agreed to do that, then that would be what it was, you know, right. like if we, if we just said like, okay, if you're getting dressed up to go out, you get your hair done. But if you're at home in bed in a scene, you're not wearing lashes or you're not wearing, you know, 
having your hair done, like that we just sort of follow the norms because I feel like it does some destructive things to people to, to see, you know, I mean, it was such a revelation when Viola Davis like took off her wig, you know, on camera and in the boys, actually this season, there's sort of a reveal of the superhero sort of transition and what goes into that, like that, just for all those beautiful comic boy fans, like those titties are not my titties. (laughs) (laughs) There is so much that is vague. (laughs) You know, I wonder though, coming out of, uh, COVID-19, um, what will be different? Because now you could you could log on to you could you could you know pull down your face mask so your phone can register your face and go into your phone and you can see some of your favorite stars on IG Live right now looking ways that they never would have presented themselves ever before. And I wonder how that may carry over when we get back to television. Will people be desiring? to, you know, present this mega glammed version of themselves in a world where, you know, the motherfuckers at home just took a mask off. You, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder, I wonder if that's going to... And mask knee is real. Mask knee is real. Yeah. <laughs> Acne for masks. <laughs> You're like, what? Just trying to be so, an influencer, Pete. Just trying to be an influencer. <laughs> Look, I, I, I've been thankful for the mask at times where I'm like, oh, this will just let that ingrown hair do its own thing. No <laughs> one will ever know. Um, that's that's the secret. When I've when I am growing a beard, it's because the ingrown hairs are having their way with my face. <laughs> um, so that falls under TMI. Um, we can't leave without talking about the boys. Um, so let you know, how'd you come to that project? It, it's season two dropping September 4th. 2020 mm-hmm. um and uh excited to see you in yet another like escalation into like a new type of franchise but uh how'd that come to be i auditioned um it was <laughs> i mean i mean that's the thing you it's so funny when we i was on you're the worst the entertainment reporters would always be like oh my god so what are you gonna do next and i was like whatever they let me do <laughs> when whoever will hire me is my next project um right. but uh no i did i auditioned um and it was pilot season and look i my career is great i have actually no complaints and I do get job offers sometimes but the jobs that I've been interested in I've had to audition for um the jobs that have come to me have often been jobs where I'm like oh I've done that before or I'm just not quite interested in that story right now um and the ones that I have been interested in I've had to run for a little bit so I auditioned um and you'll see uh, this is a very complicated character that I'm playing. And um, there were some questions even amongst my sort of team of agents about whether or not I I wanted to take on this role because of uh, the Mm. complications. And uh, things that will be discovered when things that shall be revealed. Yes. Yes. And I thought it would be a really interesting challenge and for many reasons. I mean, I also, uh, you know, I don't work out really. <laughs> I do a little Zumba 
I hang upside down in an aerial hammock. I really sound like an obnoxious Brooklynite. Um, but I don't, you know, to play a superhero is just, um, it's not, I'm not the first person that would come to mind, I don't think. Um, so that was exciting, the idea that, again, maybe I could do that. Um, and uh, I sat down with the director, uh, excuse me, the creator, Eric Kripke, for about half an hour and just talk to him about the role uh, because it it has a lot of issues. And um, I wanted to make sure he was smarter than me. And he is. Mm. So, because I, you know, as an actor, the, the role was not written yet. Right. I had some sides. And there has to be a lot of trust with a writer when you're taking on something that um, might be either controversial or complicated or um, sensitive. And I wanted to make sure that I, I trusted him. Um, and I thought he was very smart and very thoughtful. And, um, and then I, you know, danced my little heart out for him. <laughs> and and they, then they hired me. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to seeing that. Um, it is the lightning round time. Uh, everybody's favorite portion of the podcast, I'm sure. Um, and... They're never really as lightning round as I try and make them, but <laughs> if I can, if I can, if I can challenge you to mm-hmm. not overthink the answer, maybe that, maybe that would be it. Okay. Um, so um, the setup for the first one is I was listening to another podcast, and um, the 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 interviewee said you have mentors and you have cheerleaders. And that's what you need to make it in any business. You need someone who can educate you into like what that job or career will entail. But then you need the people who will say, yo, he's ready. He's the one, right? And so I would ask you um, for your personal journey, um, who would be one or you can maybe pick one, one mentor, one cheerleader. Um. God, I mean, I got, Kelly's totally my cheerleader. I mean, Kelly, I feel like we've been each other's cheerleaders through all that. We've been um, friends since we were, I was 21. I turned 21 the week I met her. And um, mm. so she's been a huge cheerleader for me. I haven't had a lot. I've actually, I've had a lot of mentors over the years, but not consistent. Um it's funny, when I was in my early 20s, I, uh, there were these two women that I met while doing Great River Shakespeare Festival, Heidi Arm Brewster and Kim Martin Cotton. Um, and we were all three different decades uh, and we ended up living together in New York. And um, I felt so taken care of by them and so welcomed into the industry by them um, as sort of artists and friends. And I remember thinking like, I hope that when I am older, I can be that kind of woman for um, younger women because you hear so much competitiveness in this industry and it's just, it's not really true. There's really more support than anything else. And so I would say they're my mentors. And now Michaela Watkins, um, she would be like, (laughs) if she ever heard this, but you know, I've known her for a couple of years now and she is a mentor of just how to be in the world and in this industry. And she is beloved for good reason. And I look at her and I think that's, that's the kind of actor that I would like to be in this industry. 
That's super. The world is so, so small. I had a Zoom call um, Friday um, mm -hmm. to direct some episodes of The Unicorn. Unicorn. Um, so, well, it, it seemed like a great call. We'll see if uh, <laughs> it, I don't know if I need to apologize uh, and send him an email, but we'll, we'll see how it works <laughs> out. <laughs> um, all right. That's awesome. Now, uh, three traits that you would say an actor needs to make it in this industry? Resilience, a sense of humor. And I don't mean that like you got to be a comedian because um, you need that in drama too. I mean, a sense of humor about what this life is because it's um, pretty ridiculous <laughs> in mm -hmm. the good times and in the bad times. It's pretty funny. Um, and... Um, it's cheesy, but love. I mean, you, you gotta love to do this. Awesome. I feel embarrassed by my cheesy answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what though? The cheese is good. It's true. Cheese right? is good. At, at a certain point, like when, when, when. Wow. I mean, I'm not trying to get bleak, but when you're on your deathbed <laughs> and and you're looking back at your life, you're gonna be thinking about cheesy shit. You're not gonna be thinking yeah. about you know, posturing and, you, you know, it'll be the hugs and, and the kisses and the moments that you had with your loved ones. So yeah. um, let's be cheesy before it's too late. <laughs> um, my final question is, who do you think should be our next guest? I have and such a long you, list. <laughs> ah, and if you know them, you know, think about people you can connect me to. That, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's part of the part of the deal here. First two people I think of are Anu Valia, who is a director. Um, She's on the list. Great. I can connect you. <laughs> all right. All right. And uh, someone you actually do also know who has followed sort of a similar path to you, Molly McGlynn, who's also a director. And she was the producing awesome. director on Bless This Mess. Um, and she directed me in a, in a beautiful movie called Mary's, Mary Goes Round. Yes, which I saw. Um, and you were great. And she was doing her thing in the director's chair. <laughs> um, all right. Well, is there anything you want to add before I, uh, let you go? Um, I just want to say thank you for the podcast. I've been listening, you know, because you're my friend. Um, but <laughs> I, I only, I would only listen to one because you were my friend and I've listened to, I think almost all of them. And I found it really interesting. And I think you have a great voice, first of all. And um, <laughs> I've been Thank really, you. yes, um, <laughs> I've just been really enjoying it. I am, I've shadowed a little bit and I'm thinking about directing as well. And um, I think it's a really valuable resource for people. You can put that in the commercials. There you go. I think, I think you should direct. I think everyone should direct. I think every actress should direct as well because until the industry finds the parity and the lack of patriarchy uh or or minimizes and eliminates the patriarchy that's there you know i've seen a lot of uh friends who are actors um uh uh actresses transition from or add director to what they do and phew, like the amount of work that that some of them do 
is crazy. And just what you learn from being on set all the time and knowing how to negotiate the probably the most important conversation um, is with the talent. You know, I feel like it's a it's a it's a win win. Yeah, it's interesting. I also think it would be really valuable to have um, actors shadow, even if they have no plan to direct, because when I was shadowing, I got a whole different insight to my show than Mm. I did as an actor. Um, And also editing is magic. I mean, you think about the days. No, I'm to take the pressure off. Not that you don't work your butt off, but like there are days when you think, oh, I did a bad job. And then you see it on screen. You're like, oh, it wasn't so bad. And I'm like, what you realize is it wasn't so bad because you had a great editor who just made it work. I've seen editors take non-actors and make them actors. And it's always easier for an editor if you're good and you know your stuff and you've got your lines down and you have intention and you're on your shit because they can use any two shot when the other actor doesn't know what they're doing. They're like, fine, we don't need to worry about that girl. Let's make right. this girl look human. Um, and, and that, but it's a, it's also a relief that like that's what that's what I ended up really loving about film and TV, uh, not over theater, but as much as theater is it's a real collaboration and the magic that like comes out of the, like what you experience versus what's actually on film is it's magic. And um, it'd be valuable for everyone to sort of go through that behind the scenes process. There you go. Advice from Aya Cash, everybody, every (laughs) actor do that, please. And then uh, maybe it'll make things move quicker when I show up. But but we'll just sh- shut up while you're doing it. Don't be an actor while you're shadowing as a director. <laughs> be quiet. Man. Well, Aya, thank you. Um, appreciate your time. Thank you for joining the podcast. And I look forward to seeing you in a non-COVID, non-social distance environment. Uh, bring, on, bring Josh by. We'll have dinner. Um, we'll have some updates for you guys. All right. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. That is, or that was, episode 13, Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Don't forget, this Friday, go and log on and uh, check out the premiere of season two of The Boys, and you will be introduced to Aya Cash as the character Stormfront. Uh, The Boys is a really, really fun show um, that you should check out. If you haven't caught up on season one, you got a couple days left, so you know what the hell's going on before you dive into season two. Uh, And, you know, hey. Hit I up on her platforms on social and let her know what you think um, about that uh, storyline that will be revealed. Uh, in the meantime, uh, next week, we are going to welcome 
a good friend of mine and one of my directorial, uh, I don't even know what the, uh, directorial inspirations, directorial um, kind of targets as I was kind of coming up and, and not a target in the bad way, but in, in a sense of where I wanted to be with my career. We're gonna welcome uh, Seath Mann, a fellow director and a very accomplished filmmaker, writer, director, storyteller. So. In the meantime, everybody stay safe out there, be well, spread love, and uh, if you have any questions, hit up that mailbag, because we're going to really get uh, into responding to those uh, if you hit them up. So that's the word, y'all. Catch you next week. Much love.